Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip, episode 98. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And calling in all the way from Chicago, uh, it's a filmmaker and our friend, Eric Marsh. What's up, man? Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. How's it going, guys? Oh, we are hanging as loose as possible. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I feel like, you know, the energy we all walked in. Yeah, we are kind of like loose. I don't know. Usually, we're usually uh, wound up so tight, you know. You usually can feel the tension. I think it's because right the lights we, off. Yeah, you know what? I haven't had any coffee today. I'm just melting into this couch. I, I do I mean, like the lighting in bed. here, though, right now, as the sun is going down over the other apartments. Yep. And, uh, you know, no lights in here. It's kind of romantic and kind of chill more also, than anything. Also, listener information. JT records all these episodes on a bed. So <laughs> if you're ever wondering why he sounds like extra cozy or anything like that, like that's usually, the reason. Usually straddling one of my sister's old pillows. <laughs> Eddie and Malcolm tuck me into the bed before we record to <laughs> give you a big smooch. On yeah, one, a kiss on each cheek from both of them. <laughs> oh, God. The movies. That Mr. Marshlands brought to us uh, a, a fantastic double feature about getting by in the city. Uh, <laughs> Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer from 1986 by John McNaughton and Car Wash, the 1976 film by Michael Schultz. Now, Eric, do you want to tell us a little bit about your, your selection here? Why you wanted to bring these to the pod? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll take you through my fuzzy logic here, because of course, you know, I was pretty stoked about coming on, and I, you know, I was thinking, how can I be clever? How can I, you know, do, you know, that blah, 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 right? And at the end of the day, I threw all that away when I just really wanted to talk about car wash. Car wash, uh, you know, overrode any cute ideas I had. And then I was like, okay, well, uh, what can I pair it with? And if you if you follow me on Twitter, you know I have a civic pride for uh, the place I uh, was born in and never left. Um, Chicago, right? So yeah. I love Chicago cinema, of course. It's like an obsession of mine. And so I was like, I got to bring a piece uh, of me, you know, to the pod. And since Car Wash is in L.A., you know, decided to bring a Chicago classic Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. little cultural nice. exchange between uh, <laughs> the Midwest and West. I know you guys have a coastal bias on this show. So. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I feel like usually most of our exchanges are with the other coast, you know, we'll swap a Brooklyn for a West Hollywood, something like that, you know, but uh, I, I think getting down and dirty in Chicago uh, it, this week really, really taught me a lesson, you yeah. know, <laughs> about hard work. <laughs> no, yeah, you know, I people would consider me a coastal elite, I guess. I guess that's what people would refer to me as, but... Yeah, I mean, honestly, you know, I watch a lot of Chicago movies and um, I'm really in touch with the Midwest flavor and real just urban grit and grind. So mm. I'm not I'm not as soft as people may seem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so let, let's let's get right into it. 
Uh, and I hope this order is okay. I actually didn't ask you about it, but it feels like the logical A movie, B movie, right? For Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer to be the, the front end of the programming. It is the B film. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I was saying it was the A film. Oh, Ooh, okay. I w- okay. Well, I guess. <laughs> Damn. I guess we have a conflict then. Let's <laughs> let's air it out on the podcast. <laughs> now, why why is Car Wash the A movie and Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer the B movie? Well, I guess the the superficial reason is Car Wash is a Hollywood film, you know, produced by Universal versus you know a hundred and ten thousand uh, dollar you know, indie horror thing. Right? Oh, okay. See, I, I don't see class. I don't see money. I don't, <laughs> right. you know. No, uh, I see big money. I see big <laughs> stacks all the fucking time. Yeah, I get big fucking money. <laughs> that is very true. Let's, let's do it then. Let's do car wash first. Well, I actually, hold on. I actually think this, this raises an interesting question about <laughs> both of these films. Why did you think it was the reverse? I think it's because of the respectability level. Mm. I I think it's like the general critical consensus, you know, like Car Wash, more known for its soundtrack, maybe. Uh, And you see like the poster and the DVD bargain bin cover where it's like it shoves Richard Pryor in there, even though, you know, he's in one scene. Uh, And it it feels more like uh, over time feels more like a bargain bin movie, whereas Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, despite it being a cult movie and that being a B thing, I don't know, just like generally nowadays when that movie's brought up, it's in, you know, a positive light as like this, you know, trashy cult movie, albeit. But I I think that uh, those two things are, you know, two different approaches, I guess. They're both A movies with a B movie spirit. Exactly. I mean, I guess neither of these are true A movies in that sense. (laughs) I guess they're kind of both B movies, but that's usually the better type of double features that we do. We could just, yeah, let's switch it up. All right, cool. We've done it without going into it, you know? (laughs) (laughs) We've literally never had this discussion (laughs) on the podcast. But it's good, it's good. Yeah, 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 98 episodes in, it's time to deconstruct and reconstruct. We're pushing the boundaries. I mean, actually, like, one of the things that i wrote down i was like what does you know does anything connect these movies and i think (laughs) and i think one one thing that i did they i did think is that they're both sort of like masquerading uh as things that they aren't in different ways Mm -hmm. right uh like henry is kind of a horror film masquerading as an art film or vice versa uh Mm or a noir even, and Car Wash is, right, a secret musical. It's uh, a plotless art film, question mark? And also, <laughs> uh, yeah, soundtrack exploitation, black exploitation, all that. So a uh, lot of questions. And I don't think we're here to answer them necessarily. <laughs> no. I think what we're here to do is break down why these movies are just great, I guess. Um Make Extended Clip great again. And these are two great films that bring us together as a divided nation. The Coastal Elite, the the flyover trash. <laughs> Coming together. <laughs> the flyover states. Is, didn't they make a movie about this? Sullivan's Travels? Yeah. I think that's what that's about. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so Car Wash. All right. This is JV back on the case with a change of pace. 1976 by Michael Schultz. Soundtrack exploitation uh, is definitely a fitting title here. 
but also an earned one. I think when you have a hangout film like this, uh, the soundtrack, the needle drop, the the mood set by music is so important. Uh, like a clear analog would be the hangout films of Richard Linklater, uh, despite those being in a, I guess, a more white milieu. I, I think that the the use of music uh, to like guide these hangout films, though, is so essential for both Schultz here and the best Linklater films. But what, what, what is Car Wash, Eric? Why don't you just give us a little Car Wash 101? What's this thing all about? Right. Uh, so you can only uh, tell the story of Car Wash by uh, telling the story of Michael Schultz. Uh, really interesting guy. And I became like, I saw this film a couple years ago at Chicago Film Society on 35. And I was like floored by it. I just loved it. And I became obsessed with Michael Schultz as this sort of like missing link uh, between, you know, the sort of early 70s uh, cycle of black films that were really great. And then their subsequent sort of disappearance. Um, And it's sort of like a chapter that, yeah, hasn't really been written about in film history, like after black exploitation. Right. And Schultz is kind of the key figure uh, of that whole era. So anyway, long story short, uh, he got notoriety for uh, directing Cooley High, which was an AIP film um, in the early 70s. And that's uh, also a Chicago classic like Henry uh, and shot here as well. And that did really well. And so that got him the uh, sort of attention of Universal. And the the film Car Wash started as an idea of a producer, Gary Stromberg, who was, well, actually, he was a wannabe producer, uh, a music business PR guy. And he watched Nashville and was like, I have an idea (laughs) to do that. At a car, at a car wash, right? Um, and that's how like all good movies are made, right? And so, yeah, the first thing he did was hire Norman Whitfield, the uh, legendary composer uh, of like a million Motown hits, basically one of the most like successful and you know great writers uh, of music ever. And he hired Norman uh, and was like. I got this idea for a car wash, you know? Um, And so it started, yeah, it's a very weird project, right? It started with the composer uh, and then they hired Schultz based on Cooley High and the way he used Motown in Cooley High. Um, And so Universal was like, all right, let's do this. Uh, Here's the writer we want you to use. And it was Joel Schumacher. (laughs) (laughs) And and so uh, that that's the core creative force uh, of car washes, Joel Schumacher, Michael Schultz, and Norman Whitfield. And they all work together in pre-production, right? Like writing the songs for the movie while Schumacher mm-hmm. was writing the script and Schultz was casting. They were all sort of collaborating. And Schultz comes from theater, so he has a very uh, sort of like low-key, laid-back, collaborative style. Yeah, that is really crazy to think about with Schumacher as that like connecting tissue kind of like moving forward also like the you know the kind of movies that hollywood would make and the sensibility that it would have versus the sensibility like the very i guess i don't know the early 70s movies but not even the black exploitation ones i was thinking more of yeah stuff like nashville and like the malaise of that you know early 70s new hollywood stuff 
but then also the the humor of Joel Schumacher, I guess, yeah. uh, like in, in this film is very like cynical and ironic kind of in a way that would be in like 80s Hollywood movies. Uh, but it also, yeah, it feels so much in the past. It feels like that that early part of the new Hollywood that was burgeoning with so much talent, whether it was like the few auteurs that got the keys to the kingdom or, you know, the, the real deal, the, the independent cinema that was burgeoning at the time. Yeah. Well, you know, kind of tangentially, you know, people talk about like, you know, there's a fifth Beatle. There might be kind of like a fourth collaborator to this project Mm. here where, you know, where did Jules Schumacher get a start doing production design for Woody Allen, <laughs> <laughs> and now, and now, now he's you know. I think I think there's even a little thing because I was reading up about Schumacher recently, where Woody, you know, told him because Schumacher was a little depressed and he was working on Woody's films, and he's like, "Why don't you go write, you know, direct your own movies, go follow your own passions?" Yeah, so the heart wants what it wants, and in result, we got Car Wash. Yeah. <laughs> And my heart wants car wash. Yeah. Like as far as a day in the life hangout movie, you know, it's funny. It, for some reason, it reminded me of one of the worst movies I've watched of this vein. Uh, the, Eric, have you ever heard of this movie Underground Aces? I think it's from 1981. No. It's a hangout day in the life movie about parking lot attendants. <laughs> Uh, and it's like a hangout comedy with just a terrible soundtrack. None of the cast is funny. Uh, and it takes place in a parking garage. And it's like so ugly to look at. <laughs> uh, but this is like the opposite of that. The way that Schultz just like finds new insert things to like close ups to insert of machines from the car wash throughout this movie. And just like exploring that territory through the characters doing their work and interacting with each other is just so immaculate. It's just like such an incredible exploration of one contained space. No. Yeah. And like usually, you know, like a, when you have these movies that all kind of take place in one kind of central area, you know, there could be an expectation where, I don't know, like it's, there's some visual limits to that or something like that. But Schultz does a great uh, job here, like making the car wash feel so big. It never feels like a small like area. There's so much going on in this car wash that, you know, it's never a, a boring location. You're always finding new places and people using certain places, uh, you know, in different ways and whatnot. There's a, you peek your head around the corner. There's always something going on at the, in this car wash. Yeah. And in terms of that, like just the, depth of the cast and like economic diversity of the characters i feel like not only is the movie like really fun and entertaining but you get a lot of really interesting like commentary through the clash of types of characters there probably like one of the funniest characters is the uh, Maoist uh, <laughs> uh, son of the car wash owner. Straight out of a Ziga Vertov group Godard movie. <laughs> yeah. Just like a talking head of a character, but very funny too. <laughs> just the most ineffectual guy who wants to be a worker, but not just who wants to wear the facade of a worker. And there's like stuff like that where it's like very obvious, like a bourgeois Marxist. Um, but then just yeah, today even... he would be carrying around a thumb drive of PDFs instead of a physical <laughs> copy of the little red book. <laughs> but like aside from that, e- even like the, the black people that work at the car wash are in like a multitude of different situations. You get like mm-hmm. the sex worker who's there as well. It's just a variety of uh, different economic standings. And I love how that all 
bubbles together. You also have Bill Duke in this movie handing in just a fantastic performance uh, as uh, Abdullah, you know, formerly known as Dwayne. And I, I, I think that like like the two types of revolutionary in this movie between him and the Maoist kid, it, it's a very like set in its place thing where it's like this is 1976, you know. 1968 it was fucking eight years ago it could have been a million years ago like these guys feel so out of place in that way uh but i think with bill duke's character uh schultz and schumacher and uh you know duke himself give him so much life and depth as a person that goes beyond like the jokes about his given name and his new name and stuff like that uh, it, it, it's really, like, probably my favorite aspect of the movie is his performance. Where were you yesterday, Dwayne? And you're late today, Dwayne. You better get off of my case, Earl, and my name is Abdullah Muhammad Akbar, all right? Yeah, I think it's really telling as well, and and no no disrespect to a friend of the podcast, Joel Schumacher, um, <laughs> but Mike, Mike, Michael Schultz basically said... You know, yeah, when I got the script from Joel, it was, quote, uh, just jokes, right? <laughs> uh, and so uh, I know Schultz, uh, you know, I've seen a handful of his films now, and he worked, you know, in a ma- he worked in the mainstream, and he tried to make broad, mass-appeal movies. Uh, and this meant often, yeah, sort of like working on compromised stuff. Not this, though, of mm. course. But uh, what I've noticed is he'll take, like, broad comedy and he's really good at tempering it with melancholy. That's, like, his thing is, like, bringing this broad comedy stuff, like, down to earth a little bit. And that's kind of, like, yeah, like, the Schultz touch, in my opinion, is the balancing of those tones and never losing sight of, yeah, like, this is a goof on the one hand, but also it's not at all, right? Yeah, like, I think that's embodied just in the way he shoots that kid, Calvin, the skateboarder, <laughs> who in 1976, you know, skateboarding, oh my god, when skateboarding was king, uh, <laughs> he's rolling through, you know, absolutely wowing everyone by skateboarding, and, uh, he, you know, he's bobbing and weaving a little bit through the car wash, it's pretty funny, but I, the way that he tracks, uh, Schultz tracks along him, and then just kind of, like, keeps going past it, and then, like, a few shots later, you just see the cops pull up and arrest a guy who had been hanging out at the car wash for having 30 parking tickets or whatever. Uh, and, yeah, like, even though that is also kind of played as a joke eventually, that balance of, like, that breezy, good-time, jokey vibe with the melancholy uh, is, you know, found in, like, every couple scenes in this. It's, it's a really great balance. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, that kind of... I may, you, I think you put into context, you know, kind of skateboarding at the time uh, this was made because there's a scene where the, you know, the stoner Maoist son uh, steps out of the car wash <laughs> building and he's just amazed by this kid skateboarding. And I was, I was, a, I guess I could kind of get it, but I was a little confused. I'm like, it's just a fucking kid skateboarding. Like, yeah, it's, he's doing a good job, I guess, but his mind <laughs> <is> melted. Yeah. <laughs> No, but yeah, I think you're talking about like the balance of kind of like jokes and melancholy. I think that's also finding that balance in a way makes it more realistic if, I don't know, if he was leaning one way or the other, right? Mm Because it's like someone with the Abdullah character, it is like, you know, his his pain is taken seriously, especially towards, you know, the end of the movie. But 
it's like it's also like there would be people ribbing him at work for being so radical making yeah. jokes you know that's <laughs> what would actually you know happen so it's kind of you know it's fun to hear those jokes too yeah i mean like the the ribbing contrasted with the serious situation is also embodied in uh the one trans character also who like her first action we see it's like she's in the men's room fixing something in the mirror it says like this isn't right and then she goes in the women's room and then it cuts away to the next character and that's just like a quick introduction and it's like almost an offhanded introduction like whoa where is this going but like the more you get into this film you see both the respect it goes beyond just like a respect as a person it's the camaraderie of like them working together where they also do make fun of each other and stuff like that where yeah i don't know i i think that the uh the milieu that they make is like so wonderfully like it's real, but it's also heightened enough to make yeah. it like the most entertaining shit possible. Uh, but it also feels so, so down to earth in terms of each character. Yeah. Ha having a very real life beyond being a, a stand in for an ensemble comedy. Yeah. One thing that's uh, really interesting about the production itself too, is uh, because it's a one location film, they shot it like, I think mostly chronologically and mm. also Schultz um, asked all of the actors to be there every day Um which is not, you know, not usual for actors, right? Uh, and so he was like, no, everyone's got to be on set every day because it's like, you're in the background, your story is still going on, you've got all this stuff to do or whatever. So I think like the set, you know, it sort of sounds like it was, uh, you know, a good time. I mean, yeah, you could see that because it is like, it, it does make seem like working on a car wash seem fun, you know what I mean? Just like the conveyor belt and thing. But, you know, of course it's not that fun. Like you said, Eddie, it's kind of like the the heightened reality yeah. of it all. And uh, also, you know, to get back kind of like the depth of characters, like we got, we got a big roster here. We got a lot of people oh, yeah. and it's like, I think each character gets like kind of its moment. And I, and I like, I don't know, usually if like kind of like these collective <coughs> character movies, like, uh, you know, like it, each character kind of has like somewhat of a same note of a moment, but it's like, I don't know, people like will have some characters will have like more serious like scenes where they kind of like steal the show or like kind of like one where um, I forgot the character name, but the guy with the afro goes in TC TC goes into the, the diner and just mm. lip syncs that song while he waits for the waitress is like that's such a money moment for him too. So, so. good. I also love when him and is do they call him hippo? Yeah, yeah. Uh, him and the one of the larger gentlemen, Hippo, uh, when they're trying to, uh, <laughs> oh my god, just one of the most insane scenes ever. So let, let me set let me set the table a little better for this. So throughout this, we hear some radio broadcasts. That's kind of what guides the soundtrack. Is that the radio is always on, you know? And uh, so we hear little bumpers, news bumpers, local advertisements, but really that soundtrack's just pumping. And we hear car wash maybe four or five times. Wonderful. We also hear like an instrumental variation, etc. One of the things we hear on the news is about the pop bottle killer, which is funny because pop, isn't that what they call it in the Midwest? Like they don't call it pop here. They call it soda. That's right. Well, yeah. they did. It is what they call it in the Midwest. So, that, you know, that's Schultz, the Schultz touch. That's the Schultz yeah. touch, right? He's a Milwaukee guy. Yeah. <laughs> 
So they have this pop bottle killer and a great piece of production design, the newspaper with the front and center picture of the soda bottle with tin foil on it. Uh, I, I really loved that little insert there of that. Uh, another great insert, just before I forget, uh, quick insert shot, best hand job in town. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Back to this bit. So yeah, TC and Hippo uh, catch on to this guy who uh, went into the bathroom with an empty soda bottle came out with it in a bag and right away i thought it was piss like i didn't think it was the bomb but uh so they think it's the bomb they you know big hijinks ensue as they chase him through the conveyor belt or next to it really and uh then the bottle goes flying and of course it just breaks on the ground and it's piss because he you know we thought maybe he was a piss freak no he just you know he has a doctor appointment Mm -hmm. but i I don't know about jury's out on that the jury is out on that (laughs) That, that's a piss freak that's a piss freak why wouldn't you just do that at home before i or why wouldn't you do it at the doctor yeah yeah that guy was sipping on piss (laughs) yeah (laughs) can't drink and drive like that Also, I mean, to get to, like, again, you were saying, Malcolm, how there are these each individual character moments that occur in big ensemble films like that. I love in these ensemble films, of course, you get the huge big name talent that you're going to slap right on the box art. And the prior appearance is fantastic. And you get the Pointer Sisters in this as well, which, Mm -hmm. like, really, I was not expecting that. But I think that moment, aside from just being, like, a really fun performance from prior. I think that's like one of the the key points where you sort of see Bill Duke's character sort of differentiate himself and like his Marxist cynicism with them. Just like I mean, and I think rightfully so for them. Just well, yeah, the way that they write Pryor's character is very cynical, like yeah. almost from Duke's perspective. Uh, the thing that Pryor does, I mean, he rolls through in this gold limo with like ten women coming out of it, like a clown car, before he comes out. He's absolutely magnetic. Uh, the, there's a great tracking shot of him walking through the parking lot with just like 13 people following him, crowding the room completely. Good to see you. The secret. There are no secrets. Uh huh. Believe that. Right, I believe Except that. believe in the Lord. Right. Mm-hmm. And believe in yourself. Yes. That's right. And Always most of all, uh-huh. believe in that federal green. Yeah. Yeah. Because money walks and bullshit talks. And then he's getting his shoe shined and uh, talking to the people about what he calls divine economic spirituality, Uh, which is... Oh my God, what a lovely phrase. Uh, so, of course, Bill Duke is going to, you know, rebel against this. And it ends with, uh, you know, uh, the the end of a sermon, really. And everyone is just ecstatic and they're passing around the uh, the hat for money, uh, which is, it's, it's a really great little bit. And the other person that they slap on the DVD cover is uh, our old pal, George Carlin. I learned a lot about philosophy from him and... <laughs> I haven't seen the words you can't say on TV. I haven't seen any of his stand up, but I've seen a lot of pictures with words on them. And Mm -hmm. he, so I've read those and I've learned (laughs) learned from him. We also have a great scene: the confrontation of the two revolutionaries when Bill Duke snatches the little red book from the son of the the owner. Uh, By the way, the owner's name is Sully. So you know, always shout out to that. (laughs) Also, (laughs) something we've and this is not not related, but something we failed to mention. In our Dr. T and the Woman episode, uh, <laughs> Dr. T is named Sullivan Travis. His, he's Sully, too. 
And he's Sullivan's travels. <laughs> uh, 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 travels. Damn, that, that's that's true too. I'm not even thinking about that, but fuck. I, I, did, that's a, I think we talked about Sully on that episode. That's true. Did that, you listen back to that for confirmation? Because I'm pretty sure. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't miss Sully's like that. Yeah, um, yeah. I listened back and it wasn't there. Okay. So, so things kind of mount to a dramatic turn uh, as they always are forced to do in seemingly plotless hangout movies but I think it really works here because yeah it zeroes in on the most effective arc with Bill Duke as Abdullah getting fired for not appearing at work you know three times in the last two weeks and uh, also <laughs> we see the the cowboy guy that works there his wife dumps him for not coming home the night before uh, and um, you know hippo had to pay with his radio oh, to have sex which is just so sad like that's that's like giving up your PS4 subscription to pay for a girls only fans that's like that's, that's you don't want to see yourself doing that giving up your radio to have sex well that's that's what I like kind of about the conclusion I get because like we do have kind of like like the Abdullah storyline is, is of course given a lot of weight and that's given like the big conclusion but like the end of these characters day some of it is good and some of it is bad yeah and, like I, I don't know just that that simple balance is you know likable but uh Abdullah then tries to rob the store before the character Lonnie who's also a great performance uh you know he he talks him out of you know just like robbing the fucking car wash uh, as he's counting the money for the day and bill duke gets this monologue about you know how it's all just getting out of control and it's uh it's very heartfelt and sad and i don't know the the end of this film is like it's it's pretty downbeat but you know you're still gonna get that classic tune over the end. Yeah, I mean TC got the girl. Yeah, that's, TC you could got be the girl. About that's, that. that's that's <laughs> the real upswing of the movie. Is that you know TC finally won the tickets for the disco, <laughs> <laughs> and he's gonna take his girl to the disco. Yeah. Uh, and I, I also love just like this block that's established, like the you know the little diner across the street, and just like the people who hang out on the corner, pretty much, uh, just as one little sliver of one neighborhood of one giant city yeah one of the things i like about all of the different endings is i like the sort of like non-endings right mm. <laughs> um i mean i think like obviously the scene with Lonnie and Abdullah is extremely moving but what's extremely distressing is the scene between mr b and Lonnie just before that <laughs> yeah. where he's just like tomorrow i promise and it's just like <laughs> oh man like <laughs> I don't feel good about this, right? Like, oh, not at all. It's so, so sad. It feels so sad and bad, you know? Well, th that's what's so conflicting about it is, like, at least for me, you totally side with Abdullah there. Like, yeah. this other guy who has well, been mistreated by the system and just by his boss is, like, completely covering for his boss when they could just both have a kind of easy way out that, you know, maybe the law will catch up to it, but... <laughs> It's it's a very conflicting scene, and it's really incredible. Well, maybe I misread this because it doesn't seem like you guys saw it this way. But I thought that maybe Lonnie was kind of kind of dissatisfied with how things are going at work, and he was about to steal that money. Oh, and really? Then, and Abdullah, maybe I'm wrong. I might have read huh. that wrong. But maybe. like, 
And I don't know, maybe Abdullah coming in just, I don't know, just a, a you moment. You do have that shot of him just kind of looking at all the money, but it's also him listening to the outside, hearing that someone's out there. That's true. But there is kind of a long pause of him just kind of staring at the money that he's supposed to be counting. Well, that's why I thought like he's, you know, that he's given so much silence and, you know, mm. just, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Hey, it's another reading. There's no right and wrong, <laughs> yeah. man. That's what I would have done. So that's, that's, that's why I say that. JT, any any final thoughts on this one before we wrap it up? Give it a bullet rating. Uh, this is a classic. I love this. Uh, thank you for bringing this to the table, Marsh. It was uh, a, a real treat. I think that, like, I don't know. I love this type of hangout movie, um, especially, like, one with a great uh, soundtrack to just sort of chill out along with. But... It puts a lot of meat on the bones as well to all these scenarios and leaves you really thinking about a lot. Um, so many great performances and great characters as well. Um, I'm giving this four and a half bullets. Malcolm? No, yeah, I'm also going to give this four and a half bullets. I really like this movie a lot. I mean, kind of in, in addition just to all of the kind of balancing of characters, I think this does have like a really good visual style and it kind of does that classic thing where uh, it'll... Uh, you know, have a, a focal point at the beginning of the shot, and then as the camera moves around, I'll find another one and whatnot. And I think that's that also helps kind of make the car wash location feel so, you know, deep and lively. And it's such a good uh, balance of just kind of like lighthearted scenes with like kind of scenes with much more, you know, of an emotional punch. And yeah, it's a, I, it's a, I think. I keep saying balance like every time I speak, but I think it's just every every aspect of this movie is just balanced with something else to where it's just really entertaining. Um, yeah, I feel like I've said most of my piece on this one. I think the editing also does quite mm -hmm. a bit at establishing almost like a proto-music video feel to the music sequences. And we really haven't talked enough about how fucking great the soundtrack is. I mean, every song on this just absolutely hits and also works perfect for its, you know, dramatic placement uh, when it is used for that and when it's not just used for building vibes. That's what this movie is all about, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I think this is an absolute classic. Four and a half bullets. Uh, Eric, w what about you? Yeah, uh, it's... Uh five bullets for me absolute classic i think uh, like Malcolm said it's it's very balanced it's firing on all cylinders i think uh there's creativity in every shot and every cut um and i also want to you know it's like it's a film that didn't really get a fair shake i mean it actually did very well it grossed i think like you know 20 million dollars or something which was really good mm. but you know it never really got its it got got its due and there's one thing i wanted to tell you guys that i think uh, you would think was funny so mm -hmm. uh car wash was selected uh to be in competition at the Cannes film festival 1977 and uh it it won uh, best sound, you know soundtrack for Norman Whitfield, and it also won a technical award, uh, but it did not win the Palm d'Or. However, Aww. however, Jacques Demy, who was on the jury with Rossellini, later told Schultz that they wanted to give it the Palm d'Or, but the two Americans on the jury refused. Oh, and those Damn. Americans, by the way. Were Pauline Kale and Rex Reed? Oh, oh. 
All right, extended clip. Extended clip. <laughs> is Rex Reed still alive? Is he still no, I don't alive? Think, I don't think. So. Okay. Oh. What, about, what about his son? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> more like X Reed. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, that's that's rough to hear. But like, oh my god, just the thought of Jacques Demy and Roberto Rossellini just vibing to car wash. That's awesome. It's so fucking <laughs> sick. Uh, I mean, real ones recognize greatness. Like, no matter what kind of movie you make, if you make great movies, I think you just have it in you to recognize greatness. I think you're right, Eddie, and I want to add this as well, because uh, w- one of the great Schultz stories is after he made Cooley High, uh, or rather, when he made it, AIP marketed it as the Black American Graffiti. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> very crudely. Uh, yeah. And, uh, well, this, of course, uh, led to Coppola seeing it. And according to Schultz, Coppola called Lucas and said, uh, I just saw this movie, Cooley High. It's better than American Graffiti. <laughs> oh, my God. And they, they invited Schultz to Napa to chill and have some wine. That's sick. That's so awesome. <laughs> That is so awesome. Bringing it home with George Lucas, as yeah. always. Nowadays, critics would say it's American graffiti by the way of Frank Ocean. <laughs> we'll be right back. Dwayne Alamina and Dula is built to the station that brings you there's one thing you should know from listening to this podcast it's that i love women the man who loved women yeah i mean you've you've been on your dr t game recently it's a real inspiration thank you man i think i'm only i think i'm gonna there's more to come i'm excited i I think i i think i'm only i think it's dr t (laughs) themed here from here on just your whole life (laughs) kind of why not Dr. T mindset is like the elevated sort of male soul because yes. it's like it's he he's respecting women as well. It's a synthesis well, of he's success. Inspecting mo- women. <laughs> well, yeah, I, and well, he respects better. them. Yeah, why not inspect and respect? <laughs> it's more it's more the pose he hits in that poster more than anything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's just how I'm feeling twenty four seven. Just so fucking like blessed and confused you know just like my life is crazy but it, you know i love it <laughs> i can't help but look up to the sky and be just laugh a little bit at it. when you crazy but you still get hose <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's what dr t and the women is actually about when you crazy but you still get hose i'm back by the way <laughs> hey. What's up, man? <laughs> sorry i was just talking about dr t and the women that's again. great I'm, I'm all for it. Oh, we might have to do another episode on it at some point, apparently. <laughs> we might have to re-review it. The Dr. T reunion special. <laughs> yes, we need to get Richard Gere in here. We need to get Andy Richter in here. Oh. Only, only the men from Dr. T and the women. <laughs> Damn. Dr. T and the men. <laughs> Damn. That's... That might be how we have to christen the new studio. <laughs> Let's get gear. 
<laughs> Gear might be a get. I think we can get him. We're going to be closer to the action, man. The, the Andy Richter's in Burbank. Yeah, Andy Richter's in Burbank. We could probably, probably pull up on him. The nudio, <laughs> the nudio is a lot closer to the Hollywood the elite than our current situation in Reseda. So we will be rubbing shoulders. <laughs> we're, we're, we're in Andy Kindler territory over there. I was going to say, Burbank's like the, that's the mids, man. That's not the Hollywood elite. Those are the Hollywood middlemen, the the cogs. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we should take this announcement. And we're back on extended clip. I guess we should just say it. Me and JT are moving in together. <laughs> For, uh, yeah, they're finally ad- admitting that they're gay yes. and they're moving in yes. together. That's right. There's going to be an underlying just aggressive tension now that we're roommates. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so uh, the Jean-Luc Godard, Chris Kyle Studios uh, will self-destruct in seven days. I think next week will be the last time we ever uh, record in here. Damn. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes you just have to say goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And- keep on moving. And keep on moving. On to Malcolm in the Middle, everybody's favorite segment. Uh, did you did you watch anything particularly good this week, Malcolm? Yeah, you know, the podcast schedule, it's been a little packed. So this is the only movie, you know, the only movie for pleasure I've watched. And uh, it's called The Meat Rack. It's directed by Richard Stockton. And the description of this movie on Letterboxd is simply a sentence. And the sentence is, a handsome bisexual hustler roams the streets of San Francisco. And, all right, let's get into this. The bisexual, right? Ratio's a little off here. It's like seven <laughs> men to two women. It's like, all right. But, um, no, that's that's not what we're watching it for. We're watching it for the art. <laughs> and, um, I mean, you know, uh, this is a, it's, it, it's a, I got to gather my thoughts on this one because I have a lot of thoughts. Yeah. But, you know, the storyline is pretty standard. We have uh, a guy who, you know, he'll have sex uh, with people for money and then he'll just steal things from their house and whatnot and eventually he just finds a girl you know he wants to stay with and but uh you know his past and his addiction to hustling people having sex for money kind of gets in the way and uh you know a lot of these people you know when he's stealing from the house they don't like that so he has to kill them so he kind of becomes a serial killer by default and a lot of this his trauma you know the reason he does this his trauma is that like uh his mom, he used to see his mom, you know, doing the same, essentially. So it's a pretty dark movie, but it, it, I kind of, I like, it's kind of, it has a, a real style to it. It kind of has a, a real, it's like, um, I don't know, it's just attempting a lot of different things, you know, within each scene. And like the characters, I don't know, there's like a scene where the, the hustler talks about Charlie Chaplin and uh, how, you know, he finds the movie's funny and sad and how he feel that's how he feels about gay people um like charlie chaplin movies but he's you know gay himself very very complicated stuff here but uh you know overall it was it was entertaining so i liked it i too have been mostly just watching things for work here at the podcast <laughs> hustle mindset but i uh i don't know so i try to squeeze in a, a picture that i want to talk about every week in our favorite middle segment and this morning, I woke up real early. I watched a nice short by our old friend Cave called I Was Possessed by God uh, from 2000. And it's basically Cave, uh, you see him drinking like a tea infused with uh, five grams of mushrooms. Uh, a and, hefty dose? Yeah, in 1993 on Valentine's Day. Um, and it shot like... 
a very early like digital camera. It look it has a really like great feel to it there. And there's a cameraman, Thomas, and then you just sort of see Kave writhing on a bed, like tripping <laughs> uh for like uh, a good 20 minutes and it's very like obviously your mileage may vary depending on how like appealing that sounds to you and how much you're about Kaveh's shit um but it's like interesting in the sense where it's like I, I don't know obviously I'm very skeptical of anyone having God speak through them but I think what's interesting about it is like I don't know Kaveh's perception of what god speaking through him is and there are a lot of really funny moments where he's like kicking his feet up and he's like beer paolo pasolini and is like <laughs> and is like saying director's names there's one a hilarious point where he's like because he's he like at a certain point like grabs the microphone and is sort of like twirling it around in his hands and like feeling it and like he's like we love you we love you Thank you, Jean-Luc Godard, for everything you do. It's so funny. I, I have that clip just saved for, I don't know, anytime I'm sad and I just want to uh, want a little pick-me-up now. Damn. Mm -hmm. It sounds like Kaveh invented, like, you know those videos where it's like a guy, it's like, I'm going to take a one gram dab <laughs> on camera right now. <laughs> it seems like Kaveh was on the forefront of, like, a... Yeah weed youtube and stuff like that. even though the it's you know he's not he's doing something else here in that movie but. yeah i mean i think there's some interesting things as well where yeah. he like he's like he turn he has the the cameraman thomas turn the camera on himself and like talk yeah. to it for a little bit that's a little uncomfortable but like <laughs> i don't know it's an interesting fun little short like i know i like cave and just getting to spend like 20 minutes with him where he's like sort of rambling and i don't know it's fun take a, a good time take five grams at at four minutes in and you could experience the trip with cave <laughs> you want that experience um, I, I watched a long movie since you watched a short one. <laughs> I watched Sagar, a 1985 film by Ramesh Sippy. And yeah, this is a three hour movie. Sometimes, you know, you, you, you hear about these Indian movies that sound like the craziest thing ever. You see the three hour runtime and you run away like a baby, but then you go watch a four hour Snyder cut. Come on, man. <laughs> mm. Anyway, that's a stupid, that's a stupid entryway. It's a great fucking movie in its own right. Like, you don't need to even think about length. If you're like me, you're, you know, uh, length doesn't exist. Anymore. You're not a I never, queen. I, I never think about length. It's not an issue with me. Yeah. <laughs> um, enough about length. Yeah, enough about length. Uh, Stop talking about length. <laughs> we have Rishi Kapoor in this movie as Ravi. And Ravi, he's... He's like, he's a businessman, but he's also a grandma's boy. So he comes into this town by the sea to come live with his grandma. And what does he do when he goes there but fall in love with a beautiful woman? I mean, what uh, you go to a beautiful town like this, what are you going to do otherwise? Uh, other than fall in love with a beautiful woman. Now, she is hanging around this guy, Raja, who Kamal Hassan plays Raja, and he is just oozing with swag like minute one to minute 186 he is just a mere fisherman though and she sees him as nothing else the the class uh differences interrupt 
the love triangle in pretty much every uh, way that they possibly could over three hours between all of these characters, uh, you know, Mona's mother and Ravi's grandmother uh, and just the town around them, bouncing them back and forth off of each other through song, dance, melodrama and, uh, you know, not quite sexual embrace, but sensual embrace. <laughs> uh it's it's an incredibly beautiful film and uh yeah check it out eric whether you watch anything interesting last week or so can i just say that i have always wanted to be on malcolm in the middle oh <laughs> that is so nice to hear yeah i've seen i've seen some good stuff and i want to i want to ex- extend the clip bonus features to uh highlight two films one from schultz and one from mcnaughton because i oh. i took the time machine back to eighth grade <laughs> to the release Ooh. of wild things and i gotta mm. say my friends uh wow yeah so <laughs> uh this was this was wild i don't think i've seen wild things since it rocked uh yeah my middle school and uh going back to that was was very interesting it's of course if you haven't seen it it's uh matt dillon as a uh sexy guidance counselor who is uh sleeping with students and uh it's basically yeah i mean it's there's a twist every five minutes you can't really describe the plot but it's a it's a swamp noir it's uh got you know denise richards nev campbell kevin bacon everyone's betraying everyone it's sexy it's weird it makes no sense and uh i loved every minute of it yeah we uh we actually did a review of wild things on the extended clip after hours feed very early on very early on you would that sub podcast (laughs) Uh, you know, keeping it for the for the exclusive patrons only. Uh, but yeah, that is just incredible. I mean, we'll, I think I want to talk about that a little when we get to Henry, actually. Yeah, for uh, sure. To talk about McNaughton. Uh, but yeah, what a sleazy fucking ride that one is. Yeah, also, it's, great it's uh, Third Eye Blind needle drop. Too. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> I, is it that and Dirty Work in the same year with that needle drop? Oh, yeah. yeah they, knew, insane. They, they knew. They knew what a great song insane. it was. What's the other one you wanted to highlight, Eric? Yeah, uh, Crush Groove from 1985. Ooh. Michael Schultz's uh, stab at the uh, the birth of Def Jam Records. Uh, very strange movie because it's, you know, more of a performance uh, piece than an actual movie, right? Uh, but it's this fantastic sort of document of early rap. It's got uh, all the classics in there. Uh, Run DMC, The Fat Boys, New Edition. Uh, all performing uh, and it's really just uh, yeah it looks great Ernest Dickerson uh, shot it so it's like Ooh. you know lit up in neon um, and like it's actually very funny because everyone in the movie plays themselves including Rick Rubin except Russell Simmons is played by Blair Underwood so it's sort of like this utopia where Russell Simmons doesn't exist and and Def Jam is is dope and everyone's happy right that looks so awesome i need to watch this right away yeah it's it's a lot of fun it's you know yeah according to uh director of rock and roll high school alan arkish <laughs> hip-hop classic all the originals are here Love that's, alan. that's his review on it uh one of the best presences on letterboxd uh <laughs> to, anyway malcolm uh all right, all right i don't, don't want to overextend this segment but i, I had a question because i and 
you know, I got three knowledgeable guys here. Maybe I could get an answer. Mm -hmm. Now, I've been recently, uh, and you could, you know, this is part of Malcolm in the Middle segment too, but you could, you could. I've seen a video recently of David Lynch putting a, a fan's panties in his mouth. And have you not seen this before? I saw the the fan video that you sent. So me. it's yeah, the video. It's he's sitting with a fan, and he's like, "I'm going to put this woman's panties in my mouth." And then he, you know, we don't see or take off the panties, but then we get the panties, and then he puts them in his mouth. Do you, is this part of anything? Is this like a behind the scenes? <laughs> Video, like, where did this video come from? What's the context? Do, and do any of you guys know the context of the David Lynch panties video? Sometimes you're just doing that kind of thing for fun. <laughs> right in a uh, little teaser to a future segment. Right in at extendedclippodcast at gmail .com. If you know the answer to that, or if you have a longer, in context, uh, unfan edited edition of that video. Yeah. I mean, it's just I don't know. It's something. I don't know. I was just like, where did that come from? Yeah, where did that come from? Return of an old segment, the website review. You know, we talked about wild things, and there is a way that you can listen to our episode about wild things. It's on my second favorite website of the week. That's right. My second favorite website of the week, <laughs> patreon.com slash extended clip. Um, that's where you go for, you know, $2 a month. There's a fucking new episode every week. Yeah, as simple as that. And it's you know it's usually five dollars a month, but recently we've discounted it to where it's only two dollars <laughs> a month. So you're not going to want to miss out on this fire sale. So it's true. not going to last long. So get it now. Only two dollars a month. Favorite website of the week: Twitch.tv/extendedclip.live. That's right, baby. Yeah, I, I I streamed myself playing PGA 2K21 twice in one day, and it was a, a lot more fun than I thought it would be. I don't have a camera yet, but I, uh, I there's a camera coming, and there's going to be some full-on extended clip gaming streams where Malcolm and I are going to go GM mode, just like control <laughs> teams and you know not play games at all, just draft, scout. <laughs> Make trades, no games at all. JT will be watching and commentating. <laughs> I'm sure all the all the extended clip sports fans will be, a, you know. Well, JT is kind of like the eye candy, the visual aspect of the of the stream. You know, they'll like, be looking at him while me and Malcolm are just like stuffed on I'm the gonna, side of the frame. I'm gonna try and open up one of those. Where the different that that other stream where it's like the tokens come on. <laughs> The love bug, yeah. Put it up your, yeah, yeah, exactly. Love bug. <laughs> Something like that. I don't know. <laughs> Isn't that a Rodney Dangerfield movie? The love bugs. Oh no, the no. lady bugs. No, the lady it's, bugs. It's, it's a kids movie. Come on, come on. Uh, another query: If you know what that thing is that gaming streamers put up their butt, uh, you know, <laughs> no, no. I'm just trying to think of what's the it's the it's the Twitch for sex. It's the cam thing. Uh, I mean, I was trying to. You know the name, and you're uh, pretending not. What? I couldn't think of it. You're thinking of Chatterbait. Oh, you don't want to say Omegle. Go Omegle. Just do it for free <laughs> to random people. Go on Omegle. Anyway. <laughs> These websites do not pass the test. <laughs> so many opinion. websites we've removed. No, today. all of these websites. Chatterbait suck. is site number three. No, uh, okay. okay. Chatterbait.com slash extended clip. It gets one bullet. No, it gets one bullet. Don't go there. It sucks. Go to the first two that I talked about. All the other websites get one bullet. The first two both get five. We'll be right back.
It's like uh, I really it it didn't hit with me as a twelve year old like it did now. That's so funny. I feel like most yeah most kids nowadays they're more likely just to be bored than like scared mm-hmm. by like scary movies. Yeah, they see ISIS beheadings like from the day they're like they log on to 4chan and they're cheering them on. Yeah, <laughs> come on. And we're back on extended clip talking about the problems with America's kids today. <laughs> and yeah, I mean. I don't want. I mean, you can't be too harsh on the kids, man. They're so young. <laughs> okay, I guess. I guess you've got to turn the corner there pretty quickly. It's got, well, it's called you know, it's Doctor T mindset. It's enlightened mindset. <laughs> all right, all right. Let's reel it in. Uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer from 1986 was directed by John McNaughton, and it is sleazy but artful it is you know it's kind of a that high and low brow mix it's an independent film it has lots of you know exploitation elements front and center nudity covered in blood uh lots of internal you know kind of kind of taxi driver-esque uh incel (laughs) monologues uh it's it's a very precise film in its framing and its editing and the kind of dead-eyed uh dialogue which is kind of a contradiction to say but you know what i mean yeah um i i had a lot of fun with henry portrait of a serial killer i i thought it was kind of slyly funny in a way that something like the house that jack built actually kind of bugged me but in mm-hmm. this i really liked it maybe because the ironic humor was in a smaller dose yeah. uh that i was able to take the rest of it seriously kind of mm-hmm. uh but yeah I, I i really dug this one no yeah me too like i like you said it is like a good like a mix of kind of like artfulness and sleaziness and i think it's like the way it approaches certain things just kind of like the story structure and all that stuff. It's, it just takes a little bit of a different angle and all that stuff just makes it all the more intriguing to watch. I mean, to think about uh, the kills and whatnot, most of like, not all of them, but like a lot of it, a lot of the time, instead of seeing a murder, we'll see like a luxuriated shot of like the dead body and the whatever way they were killed and kind of like have sound over it, you know, of them getting killed rather than, kind of seeing the act itself and it's just i don't know kind of using like the way it kind of just takes different approaches to you know certain scenes certain shots yeah i think that like for something that has that highbrow lowbrow mix it very successfully avoids like being something that like the contemporary elevated horror bullshit like you get that very artful gliding camera work and like you don't see a lot of kills on screen, but you're still getting that like exploitation, like gore, mm. and by like lingering on these bodies, and like you also, ha- I mean, by not seeing a lot of the murders and hearing like the sound of like struggle over the corpses, it like I don't know, that's almost more disturbing. Yeah, um, Eric, do do you want to tell us a little bit about Henry? portrait of a serial killer what, what's this movie all about who's this john mcnaughton fella well you know at the end of the day it's a movie about a couple of guys who fall in love with the filmmaking process <laughs> and uh that's the kind of uh, you know representation i like to see uh in movies um but for real yeah so uh the film of course has a very you know sordid 
history. McNaughton was, uh, you know, a video guy sort of working, uh, you know, doing documentaries and doing camera work and stuff like that in the 80s. And he worked for a video company that was based in Oak Park, uh, in which is just outside of Chicago. And they he, he had been making documentaries for them, and they had a whole project that collapsed. And so they were like, hey, John, uh, we have $110,000. And he was like, oh, uh, okay. Uh, and then, yeah, and the result was uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer shot in, <laughs> uh, shot in a month. Um, in Chicago, in sort of, yeah, bleak, like, late autumn, early winter Chicago. It's just disgusting. Um, <laughs> and yeah. yeah the, especially, like, the nighttime exteriors. It looks like a, like a D-movie version of Thief, you know? Like, it's just, like, it's just a slimy version of that slick crime city aesthetic, you know? Absolutely. It even has some of the same streets as Thief. It's because it's got Lower Wacker, which is this sort of like tunnel-like labyrinth that's right by the Chicago River downtown. And that's mm-hmm. featured in like every Chicago movie has like something on Lower <laughs> Wacker. But of course, uh, yeah, in McNaughton's version, it's kind of what it looks like in real life. Like, really, really (laughs) scary and not cool, like Michael Mann, right? Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think, like, to me, I hadn't seen this film in a long time. Of course, you know, I saw it uh, coming up because it's a regional classic, but uh, I was really impressed once again by, yeah, like, how they lean into the the lack of budget and do like you guys were just talking about, about the way uh, you hear stuff and you don't see it. And even just like, yeah, those simple tracking shots like are all really because they had no money. Um, but they lean into it in a very sort of like artful way. Uh, yeah. And yeah, so obviously like because of the film's uh, content, they had all kinds of <laughs> trouble getting it released. Uh, so it got like a proper release limited in 1990, four years after it got made. But it's actually oh, wow. like uh, what's really interesting is the period from 86 to 90 where it's sort of like playing festivals. McNaughton is broke. Uh, but the film is circulating on videotape and uh, people like started to see the film through the sort of like dupes of the videotape. Uh, and so it, you know, even had a cult before it ever came out because, right, it's like the age of VHS. Yeah. Um, there's even a funny story I came across where uh, Rick Kogan, the Tribune columnist, like saw a, a, a flyer. Because, like, McNaughton just put, like, a thousand flyers around Chicago that were, like, you know, Michael Rooker's face or whatever. Uh, (laughs) And this guy, Rick Hogan, he, like, saw the flyer and was like, what the hell is this? And he went immediately to the Tribune and was like, Dave Kerr, what is this? And Kerr, like, slid (laughs) him a video, a VHS, like, check it out for yourself, you know, Uh, kind of of vibe. So, uh, damn. I can imagine the very duped VHSs of this almost getting a snuff film vibe uh, especially like as the film transitions to video footage later on when they get the camcorder and that that grainy video footage of course processed multiple times through you know uh, whatever people copying it and you know handling it poorly and a bunch of different people passing it around over the time could definitely definitely scare the shit out of some people in the late 80s probably especially watching it on fucking a 13 inch screen you know (laughs) 
what a way to get you know that good you know vhs sheen, sheen get like a videotape of a videotape there. exactly yeah just go back and forth until it looks like garbage <laughs> there's actually a really funny uh story about that uh the film was originally two hours and 20 minutes long uh, wow. And they didn't uh, have any like way to like make a copy of it to show it to the producers. So they took a video camera and taped it off the flatbed and showed it to the producers who were like, this is a piece of shit. You need to cut this thing. But it's because <laughs> they were watching a, a VHS of the film running through the flatbed. I don't know. It's a crazy story. But oh, my God. Uh, that... So there there was. Yeah, there was like an epic version of this film. Uh, yeah, go figure. That's a- that it, yeah, that's interesting that you said that there's like a much longer cut because like, I don't know, kind of like the shortness of this film almost, I would have thought felt like somewhat intentional, but like, like yeah. you said, like them leaning into the low budget, you know, shoot less, it's yeah, going to be it lower feeling budget. feeling like a low budget movie with these like few kind of distinct longer scenes Yeah, uh, it kind of feels like a piecemeal film yeah. uh, rather than something that was cut down from two and a half hours. But that's, yeah, really strange to hear. There's three scenes, right? And like two of them are like heavy, like dinner table at the apartment scenes. They're both really good too. Yeah. And like in the middle, there's kind of like just this, you know, enjoyable, but somewhat filler scene of uh, the the brother who's tracy arnold mm-hmm. uh traveling around chicago getting the i love chicago shirt <laughs> and it and like it, it <laughs> and it's it's so funny how like uh how dark the two scenes that sandwich it is and like yeah. kind of i don't know just the weird tension that's created in her you know putting on the i love chicago shirt <laughs> um at the dinner table it's yeah. it's a very strange tension between these characters we have henry who is your typical American boy next door, Uh, (laughs) the serial killer himself. You have his his roommate, Otis, and you have Otis's sister, who is coming into town to make some money either to send back for her kid or to bring her kid up to Chicago with her. Uh, She's undecided, but she does love Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Otis is, like, trying to make it right. You know, we see him meet with his parole officer. You know, almost like a typical rehabilitation story, knowing that Henry's a fucked up guy, but not knowing the extent to which he's a fucked up guy. He just figures, okay, this guy killed his mom in some psycho rage as a kid, but he's a normal, nice and normal guy now. Uh, but no, Henry is just a serial killer, and he exposes him to that world. He guides him through the world of a serial killer uh, in a very procedural way. That I think the procedural element, more than anything, is what recalled the house that Jack built for me. Uh, but this, it's not like pretentious about murder being an art it's more about just like knowing how to get away with it <laughs> mm-hmm. and reveling in it and, and reveling in the, mm-hmm. the just the joy of it yeah yeah, yeah. murdering to solve your problems you yeah know? exactly mm-hmm. well i mean otis i mean almost feels is like more disturbing to me than henry because it's like he has like a human personality and like isn't like i don't know you don't understand his backstory like henry you get the the picture of someone who is deeply abused through childhood Mm -hmm. and is like kind of like completely dead inside but otis is like more gleeful about (laughs) uh like sadism and murder that well that's what i think is very uh intelligent about how like tracy arnold is kind of like the audience you know in point of view so to speak Mm -hmm. 
you know, we get so kind of accustomed and we get very sympathetic to Henry. You know, we hear the, the, you know, the bad things he's went through and then Tracy Arnold, they kind of bond over their, you know, both of their, well, they don't quite bond over their trauma, but Tracy Arnold feels like she could share. It seems like she's trying to bond over their trauma and he just doesn't even want any, but it's not that he doesn't want any part of that. It's that he doesn't. That's not part of his exactly. makeup as a person. Like, but it's not going to happen. It, obviously, she feels somewhat of a connection to him because of that. Yeah, and, of course. And so, yeah. And so it is like Otis is also, you know, trying to have sex with uh, Be- Becky. Yeah. Becky, I keep referring to her as the actress's name, but Becky in the movie the whole time. And yeah, and it's obviously that Becky likes Henry. And so that's what kind of makes these kind of like bearer bones apartment scenes so great are like these very strange and unsettling tensions that can kind of um you know patch up any you know uh faults found in the movie i also think i mean the setting of the apartment in general i mean like the the full landscape is like a very dirty like gross movie but like that particular apartment it's like the most permanently dirty sink i think i've ever seen well, yeah, and also just like the way, like it's kind of like the one light set up at the table, right? Yeah. I mean, when when more serious stuff goes down there, it really provides a great, you know, kind of stark, dramatic mood to it. I mean, one a shot that I I remember uh, a lot when Becky kind of asks both of them to go to the bar after um, Otis kind of makes an advance on her, and the, we kind of just see the backs of their we see their backs and the backs of their head and they kind of just sit for a second. They're like, all right, let's go get a beer. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it, it, you know, that works until it doesn't pretty much like towards the end of the film. Otis is just like, come on, let's just get a beer. And, uh, Henry just pushes him out of the car. He's like, you want to get a beer? Not particularly. I want a beer. (laughs) If you want a beer so bad, Otis, Go ahead and get one. All right, I will. The style is really impressive. Uh, the use of the uh, 4-3 frame is, like, it's always very symmetrical. There's also uh, those very, like, roomy two shots that I think a lot of stuff that's framed in 4-3, like, kind of neglect. Uh, but th- there's a lot of those in here within those cramped spaces even. But yeah, th- those really great like just like close-ups and like profiles of these th- one of these three characters, any which, you know, three of them uh, at any time in the film are just like so striking. I don't know. I was really taking, taken with the visual style of this movie. Yeah, I think especially to, um, you know, it's interesting because it's like so sort of locked down. And yet the film, you know, when the film came out, it sort of like garnered comparisons to Cassavetes, which obviously mm-hmm. is like kind of a stretch. But I get like, you know, yeah. I, I get what people mean when they say that. Right. It's like the perform like the performances are are really good. They're like really nuanced and really detailed, just like the relationship between, you know, Henry and Otis and the way Otis is always like putting his hands on him. Uh, I mean, it's like all these little details really like add up and it's all. uh, Yeah, I mean, even to circle back to like that big uh, dinner conversation between Becky and Henry, like it's so heartbreaking 
to me like and it's just like a simple shot reverse shot and they're both in close-up and just like becky being like i feel like i've known you and then it just like it's like kuleshov effect with a serial killer you know he's just like <laughs> looking back at her and she's like feeling this connection that isn't there uh yeah. and it's like so heartbreaking and i feel like yeah i mean i feel like obviously despite all the horrible stuff that happens each character is sympathetic in some way right i mean like they they all have just like just deeply like damaged yeah. psyches you yeah. know it's just like no matter what like glimmer of humanity you find in them uh to uh, to a different extent with each character obviously becky being the most human as you said malcolm she's kind of the audience point of view the audience entryway uh but like no matter how deep it is, it's always like buried under so much, just like psychotic, you know, uh, yeah. insanity, really. And it, it really reaches its peak when they go to get a new TV <laughs> after Otis oh. fucking breaks the TV, which I love watching the image of the TV with the antenna, the bunny ear antennas, like slowly degrade more and more as he's fucking with it. And then he gets so frustrated, he just kicks the fucking screen. I also love how like simple the like uh, the motivation for the scene is. This how simple of a springboard. It's like Otis gets mad at the TV for not working, kicks it until it breaks. It's like oh shit, we got to go get a new one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did you do that for? I guess I got carried away. Well, I guess you did, Otis. Shit, I got to have a TV. Well, let's go shopping. So they go to this underground, uh, you know, this this storage locker where this guy is selling probably stolen, you know, uh, audio video equipment. And he offers them this like tiny, like 11 inch black and white TV for 50 bucks. And they just like haggle the funniest, just psychopathic haggling of all time. Just like knowing they only have 50 bucks. Well, what about this one? Well, you know, that, that'll get you 500 on top of the, you know, the thousand for the camcorder. <laughs> and uh, then they just brutally murder him. Uh, and it's such a great kill that gets finished off with a TV through the head. <laughs> and that's where they load up with not just a new TV, but a camcorder. And that's when the fun really sets in yeah. uh, for the rest of the film, you know. I, I think I like this kill because it has a different feel to it than the rest of the murder scenes throughout the movie. It's uh, it's kind of like the most conventional kind of like annoying character gets introduced. Let's have fun seeing him getting tortured and killed. It's kind of awesome though. <laughs> well, no, yeah, I mean, the, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm annoying. So I, I relate to him. In a yeah. Way, but. <laughs> like, it's like, just like big, just like scumbag. Ornery. Uh, yeah. Ornery chewing man <laughs> who hasn't stood up in hours. <laughs> Basically things get worse and worse. The tension rises between Henry and Otis. Henry then walks in on, on Otis, like, yeah, uh, raping his sister, Becky, and uh, he murders him. And then they dispose of the body together. And then is it implied that he also murders Becky after that? Uh, well, yeah. After I, as yeah. you then see the, uh, I, you know, I'm begging the question. It's <laughs> uh, uh, He, you know, disposes one more time, uh, just one suitcase on the side of the road. And he leaves. And yeah, as you said, Malcolm, the her character is the 
audience entryway and exit way uh, <laughs> as the the film finishes, uh, you know, like that long shot of the briefcase across the highway after he drives away. It's just such a fantastic image. Kind of the second scene, you know, compared to the scene where the, you know, Henry and Becky kind of both, you know, give context to their lives and, you know, their trauma. Kind of that scene where they're, you know, both in the car and like, Becky's, you know, kind of being like, all right, like Henry's, you know, my guy now, like I'm, I'm rolling with him and like, uh, you know, pops the, I love you on him. And, you know, Henry gives, gives the, I guess I love you too. And it is like, like you said, Eric, like such great performances and like a note like that, I, I feel like has to be earned through like previous, you know, minutes of great performance, you know, rather than it just being popped in at the end of the movie. And that's so brutal that scene. Cause he's just like trying to like, I, I it, that's in that car ride where he's just trying to shut her up. He's like, why don't we listen yeah. to some music? <laughs> like put on some music, like just not wanting to talk at all. <laughs> Eric, thank you for bringing this one to the pod. Do you have any final thoughts on this one before you give it a bullet rating? Uh, yeah, I think, uh, I just want to highlight, uh, you know, some small moments that I think are, uh, sort of outside of even the main stuff, right? Like, there's a lot of really short scenes, and I kind of like that. You know, I'm thinking of just, like, small stuff, like when Becky's working at the salon, and there's just, like, one dolly shot where this, like, racist woman is getting her hair done and complaining about another salon, and it just, like, fades out. Um, but that feels very, like, real to me in a very, like, ugly south side uh <laughs> racist woman kind of way um you know i also of course like love um the part where the the guy at the convenience store says go bears to to michael rooker to henry <laughs> and he's just like fuck the bears uh, which, <laughs> what a great moment which is yeah just a really incredible incredible moment um what else? I feel like there was something else I wanted to say, but who can remember? Oh, I guess one thing I want to ask you guys. I feel like the soundtrack to this film is kind of divisive uh, among mm. people. I really like it, but I can see how it could be like overbearing. No, I really liked it. I, I liked it in its more drony moments, I think is the best, like to slowly yeah. build tension, mm -hmm. even if maybe it is a little overbearing in those scenes. I, I thought it really worked for that reason. No, yeah, I guess I didn't really think about it too much, but I, I guess I liked it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I love it, but I was, like, also thinking about, you know that scene at the beginning when it's, like, in a mall parking lot and he's, like, stalking that woman uh, and there's, like, no score and I was watching it and I was like, oh, my God, this is, like, this is like a Brisson scene. It's like yeah. uh, sound effects and shortcuts. Like, and I was thinking, wow, maybe the, if the movie didn't have the score, it would feel maybe even more like Brissonian. Cause it is really yeah. like, yeah, stark and austere uh, and short. Right. So, yeah. Um, bullet rating four bullets, four bullets. I am going to echo that. I think four bullets is right on the money here. I think in terms of, like, the 80s and American uh, sleaze, usually you don't see it quite like this on the independent end of the spectrum, uh, where it is kind of fulfilling what you want and also, uh, I mean, it's a basic thing to say, but to be artistically kind of challenging as well. 
I, I think this pushes it a lot further than a lot of the 80s sleaze that I love that maybe is maybe incidentally artistic cha- artistically challenging. You know, I, I think this one is very like purposefully abrasive and difficult and brooding and slow in a way that, yeah, I, I really just I had a ball with. I, I love that style. Love hanging out with the boys. <laughs> uh, Malcolm, what about you? I'm also going to give it four bullets. And like you said, yeah, this is like kind of like, I don't know, like with like 80s horror movies, like like a lot of what I enjoy is kind of like maybe like expressive visuals where this is like it is like the visuals are great, but they're very um, they're very like grounded and down to earth. And then they get really sleazy, like within the videotape sequence and stuff like that. And yeah, it is like, um, I don't know, like. There's no, there's no camp in this. And like, that's not a, I don't, I'm not saying I don't like that in other movies, but it is, it's interesting to see that from like an eighties horror movie just kind of served straight up and and it working so well. So I liked it a lot. Yeah. I, I gave it three and a half bullets by bumping it up to four talking through. This is one of those situations Mm -hmm. where you just talk through it and you love it even more. I mean, you said there's no like camp in it, which is definitely true. But I think there are moments where it's like, I, I don't know, that make mm-hmm. me sort of smile when they're reviewing the footage where it's just like two, just two guys, like yeah. two filmmakers, like <laughs> after they watch this uh, horrifying, gruesome scene on, on like tape. And then it's just the two of them talking about it afterwards on yeah. the couch. That's, uh, I don't know, it's cheeky and, and funny in a way. And uh, I don't know. It was a good time at the movies. Well, it's a good scene, you know. No wonder they're talking about it. <laughs> it is a good scene. <laughs> I was going to say that scene was operated by Michael Rooker himself. He actually operated oh, wow. the video camera. So uh... there is an incredible camera placement there. Yeah. When Henry, you know, places the camera down, but it's like so precise. Where uh, then you see like the son of the two people they're assaulting and then murdering uh, walk in. And I don't know, it's just this like very wide framing within the four, three aspect ratio of, you know, four characters in one limb of another character pretty much. And uh, yeah, I mean to make an accidental camera placement of like where he just like threw the video camera down to be that perfect and precise. It's uh, it's quite a scene. This is also like a stray note, like based on like the real guy that like Henry was inspired by, but like, he like confessed to six hundred murders. Jesus, that's like a crazy amount. Like I was just thinking about like when I was like looking into stuff about it. It's like that's he's putting in time. I, that's yeah. like a full time job. Although I, you know, I might I might say he might be going Wilt Chamberlain or yeah. Joel I mean, Schumacher mode. Yeah, I mean he's probably you're probably beefing up the numbers, of course. Yeah, but like you gotta beef up the numbers. Yeah, I've actually I've killed six hundred and one. Come so. on, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that impressive to me. <laughs> got to have a tv the next segment is everybody's favorite the email segment uh extended clip podcast at gmail.com is where you can write in and um this week's email comes to us from nick this is movie slash episode recommendation look man we pick the movies ourselves (laughs) (laughs) and that's that (laughs) it's a very long email and i'm sorry nick i'm not going to read all of it but it is an interesting uh description of a movie called the beast of war from 1988 uh also known as the beast directed by kevin reynolds and starring george dzunza 
uh, I don't know how to, I never know how to say that guy's name. Uh, Zunza, something like that. Uh, but it's like a, uh, it's like a major studio movie that only got released on two screens for some reason. Must have gotten pulled. Mm-hmm. A film modit of sorts that only one person I follow on Letterboxd has logged, but it has a thousand and a half views. Like it's in circulation. It's out there. Um, but yeah, it's about uh, the brave Mujahideen soldiers. Okay. Yeah, 1988 film about uh, Afghanistan uh, and fighting off the Soviets. So, hey, that could be cool. Yeah, I'm not going to write it off entirely. It's just like, Nick, how much how much do you want us to uh, review these Yeah, movies? that's the thing. There's a thing Sweet that here. Sweet the pot. Let, let me like, read a, t- a portion of the email. Uh, <laughs> just because just there's one thing that kind of, yeah. Like, it says... We're, it's such a long email. I lost the phrasing, but it says that like I've been getting other podcasts to do, and it's like, dude, what the fuck? Are you just are you just looking up movie podcasts and emailing all of them? Really interesting. <laughs> yeah, he says like I've been trying to get other podcasts to watch it and do episodes about it. Not as not, not his first choice, you guys. Then, huh? Yeah, I guess yeah, not. Uh, I guess not. I think Nick is just Kevin Reynolds, the director of the movie, who wants like a <laughs> reclamation. He doesn't like his current reputation with Waterworld and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves being like his biggest movies. He wants this auteurist comeback late in his life. What, with what? The Beast of War. Hit up the cost man. It seems like you know Costner pretty well, Reynolds. Yeah, right. So, I don't know. I don't know what you want us to do here. Yeah, I I really do not. Uh, yeah, if you want to send an email that's more personal to us, uh, extendedclippodcast at gmail dot com and at extendedclip sixty nine is where you find us on Twitter. Or, JT is chomping at the bit. What, I what just do you like if you want to make these offers, like throw a little money under the table. Is that's what I'm true. saying. That's like true. you you want an episode? Hey. Like, let's talk numbers. Talk numbers. Because money walks and bullshit talks. Numbers uh, talk, dude. That's all I got to say. Maybe we'll do a thing where, like, uh, after a certain amount of money on Patreon, they get to pick an episode or something. The fans? Like, literally, they pay to pick the movie we talk about. <laughs> yeah, let's... I'm, I'm down. Fuck all it. right, cool. Hey, if you're the 20th caller, if you're the 300th donor... Fuck you a will, fan contest. Yeah, uh, no. You get either or. <laughs> you get to either, either or. Have, you get to have no, a sex fans, with us or you the, get to choose the movie. It's going to be the or. Uh, 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 <laughs> <laughs> They've seen us. They do not. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Anyway. You never know. Anyway. 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 <laughs> Eric, do you? I mean, you have you have a film people can watch. You have a feature film called Orders, and you also have some other work. You know, you have uh, uh, a short film. Uh, 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 sorry, I'm trying to remember the title off the top of my head. Is it called Telephone for Lieutenant Columbo? Yeah, Telephone for Lieutenant Columbo. Yeah. Yes, uh, a great short film compiling oh, the art of Peter Falk talking on the phone uh one of our great phone actors but also yeah is a feature film called orders and what else do you want to plug for the people out there just you know the usual follow me on uh, twitter.com slash marshlands and uh i'll post all my best screenshots there awesome awesome you know before the episode ends uh i want to re- reintroduce a bit that i've only done once but i'm going to bring it back it's hashtag money Malcolm. Let's oh. get those bets in. Everyone's uh, favorite segment. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm Malcolm. Kramer, and welcome to my world. You need to get in the game. Go out of business and he's nuts. They're nuts. They know nothing. Stimulus came in and I actually, I timed these bets to where they'd be done by the end of the episode and not a bad day. We went two and one today. Okay. Um, the one we lost, we had a parlay where if Zach Levine 
got over 27 and a half points and Darius Garland scored at least 21, I would have received uh, $13. Didn't work out. But <laughs> wait, it's so funny you're doing this after the fact because it's not betting advice. It's just bets you've made. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's uh, it's it just keep keeping up with. Well, I don't know. Yeah, if you ever hear up with Malcolm's bets. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> money it's, Malcolm. Yeah, money Malcolm. And then um, I made an individual bet on Garland to get 21. He had that, thankfully. So it's that bum Zach Levine that fucked me. But uh, um, Garland came through, and then I bet on Valchun- Jonas Valchunas of the Memphis uh, Grizzlies to have 31 points, rebounds, and assists combined. So uh, we made $5 today. Wow. Big Jonas <laughs> coming through. Yeah, respect, man. Sorry to diss your boy, the the best basketball player Chicago's had since Derrick Rose, Eric. But uh, <laughs> Zach Levine... Kind of a bum. Whoa. <laughs> kind of a bum. I like Levine. I like Levine. I That's do, why I bet I on don't him. like him. Interesting. <laughs> I'm going to get hate mail for that. <laughs> do you have any yeah, thoughts on that, Eric? Yeah, for sure. Uh, <laughs> I, no, I don't I, I don't not like him. I'm just... Come on. Let's not, let's not do this. He's not a number one. I'm not wanna, a number one. Uh, he's not a... Look. <laughs> you wouldn't trade for him? If he's their team leader now, where, where are they? Like, you're not building a team around Zach Levine. It's not. It's not going great. No, yeah. I mean, you're probably right. I just. I still like him. You know. I mean, he's a cool guy. But I'm you're about sure. winning. You're about doubling. I'm, I'm not about these he's slam a, dunk winners. He's a fuck. Look, this guy won a dunk contest. I'm looking for rings. We're baby. talking to a fucking Lakers fan here, so no wonder he's talking like this. <laughs> Next week. Um, we actually don't have the double feature confirmed yet. That's how hard our guest is thinking about it. Uh, next week we will be having Violet Luca on the program and, uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Going to be awesome. The next Patreon episode. I actually don't know. We haven't decided yet, but the last one was love on a diet, the Johnny toe fat suit movie. So go check that out. The future, so many possibilities. We don't know what movies we're watching next week, but that makes it even more exciting for me. It next. does. It does. And uh, that's 99, so look out for our 100th episode special coming very soon to your ears. Okay, bosh. Dig the players on the session. Blowing on steam guns, Floyd and Lloyd. Darrow Igus. And Dwayne Jesse. Sucking it up on the vacuum, Hippo, James Spinks, Lindy, Antonio Fargas. Ding the Pointer Sisters, and Daddy Rich, Mr. Richard Pryor. The taxi drivers, George Carlin, on shoes, Clarence Muse. DC is Franklin Ajay, and Mona's something else, she's Tracy Reed. I mean, uh, Abdullah is Bill Duke, Lonnie, Ivan Dixon. On the bottle, Henry Kenji. On burrito, Pepe Serna. Geronimo is Ray Vitti. Scruggs, Jack Kehoe. The man with the mummy, that's Garrett Morris. Justin and Loretta, Leon Pickney, and Red Woods. On the outside, Miss Beverly Hills, Lorraine Gary. On the inside, Lauren Jones. From left to right, Leonard Jackson, Sully Boyer, and Professor Irwin Corey. The head on the head, Richard Brestoff. On makeup, Melanie Mayron. Arthur French is Charlie. And on skateboard, 
Michael Fennell. 